We're going to do everything that we can to provide safe evacuation for our Afghan allies, partners, and Afghans who might be targeted because of their association with the United States. Let me be clear. Any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Ram Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO and Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, we're on WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Huh, blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com with an assist from Desi Doyen. But today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler stepping in to pull up the guest host chair for today anyway. And as we tend to do, we're going to start with the news because there's a lot going on. Of course, all eyes are on Afghanistan, where there's a tense situation around the airport in Kabul as people are trying to escape the Taliban. President Biden addressed the nation Friday afternoon about the continuing effort to evacuate American citizens and Afghans from the airport. Earlier in the day, former U.S. Ambassador John Bass arrived in Kabul with a team of diplomats to speed up visa processing for those who helped the United States over the last 20 years. They tell us that around 5,200 troops are securing the airport and about 7,000 people have been evacuated since Saturday. The military has said it will be able to extract between 5,000 and 9,000 people a day once evacuations are at full pace. So it was under that backdrop that the president stepped up to the microphone. He spoke for about 10 minutes and then took some questions from the press. The main point that he wanted to make? We're going to do everything that we can to provide safe evacuation for our Afghan allies partners, and Afghans who might be targeted because of their association with the United States. But let me be clear, any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. Apparently, that wasn't clear enough for some of the members of the press corps. Zeke Miller from the Associated Press started the questioning. Would you make the same commitment to bring out Afghans who assisted in the war effort? Yes. Yes, we're making the same commitment. There's no one more important than bringing American citizens out. I acknowledge that. But they're equally important almost as all those who, those SIVs, we call them, who in fact helped us. They were translators. They went into battle with us. They were part of the operation. 
as well as we're also trying to get out as many NGOs, uh, non-government organizations, women's organizations, et cetera. We're doing all we can. In the meantime, uh, Secretary Blinken and I am going to be working with our allies to see to it that we can bring international pressure on the Taliban to be — they're looking to gain some legitimacy. They're going to have to figure out how they're going to maintain that country. And there's going to be harsh conditions. We're — strong conditions we're going to apply, and it will depend on whether they get help based on whether or not how and well they treat women and girls, how they treat their citizens. So this is just beginning in that score. They passed the 31st to make that happen, to bring all the Americans out, to bring those SIVs out. I think we can get it done by then, but we're going to make that judgment as we go. It was an interesting press conference in that President Biden seemed to be on a different uh, place than some in the media. For instance, when asked about criticism from global partners who questioned the wisdom of the decision to pull out, the president said he wasn't aware of those criticisms. And in fact, he claimed to have support from the allies. He said, quote, I've seen no question of our credibility from our allies around the world. I've spoken with our NATO allies. We spoke uh, we spoke with the NATO allies, the Secretary of State, our national security advisors have been in, our national security advisors have been in contact with his counterparts throughout the world and our allies. The fact of the matter is, Biden said, I have not seen that. Matter of fact, the exact opposite. I've got the exact opposite thing. We're actually committing to what we said we would do, although there have been criticisms. And it seemed that President Biden was operating from a different set of facts than many of the reporters were. This question came from ABC News. The military has secured the airport, as you mentioned, but will you sign off on sending U.S. troops into Kabul to evacuate Americans who haven't been able to get to the airport safely? We have no indication that they haven't been able to get in Kabul through the airport. We've really? We've made an agreement with the, with the Taliban thus far. They've allowed them to go through. It's in their interest for them to go through. So we know of no circumstance where American citizens are carrying an American passport or trying to get through to the airport. But we will do whatever needs to be done to see to it they get to the airport. And Thank one you. more, Mr. President. Uh, last month, my colleague Martha Raditz interviewed Abdul, an interpreter who was on the front lines with U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Overnight, we received a photo of Taliban militants coming to the door of his home, literally hunting him down. Thankfully, he was able to escape, but he is obviously still in mortal danger. What would be your message to Abdul, his wife, and his three young daughters? We want you to be able to get to the airport, contact us. We'll see whatever we can do to get you there. We've got to get you out. We are committed to deal with you, your wife, and your child to get all three of you out of Afghanistan. That's the commitment. Let's hope we keep that commitment. A little later on in the hour, we're going to speak with Spencer Ackerman, who has been a, a national security reporter for a couple of decades now. And he's got a brand new book out called Reign of Terror that you likely have heard about. So stick around. But before we leave President Biden and Afghanistan, they did make some news. Officials said that the military will use additional bases in the Persian Gulf region after an airbase in Qatar said no more. They've reached capacity. So there's an overflow of evacuees in Qatar. 
that prompted the U.S. military to stop those evacuation flights out of Kabul for a few hours until they figured out where to take other evacuees. Now, the media is not giving the president an easy pass. I think the coverage has been overwhelmingly pro-war, with a lot of finger-pointing at the Biden administration I've seen a lot of former Bush administration officials who got us into this mess in the first place all over the television. I've seen a lot of criticism of this administration, but no anti-war organizations and and really nobody pointing a finger at at the people who got us into this mess in the first place and who kept us there for 20 years. So there's plenty of blame to go around. After the press conference this afternoon, the Washington Post gave President Biden three Pinocchios, mostly over troop numbers. But more news is coming to light. In fact, Friday morning, the Wall Street Journal reported on a memo, an internal State Department memo signed by 23 U.S. Embassy staffers back on July 13th, warning the Secretary of State of the potential collapse of Kabul soon after the U.S.'s August 31st troop withdrawal deadline in Afghanistan. This cable represents the clearest evidence yet that the administration had been warned by its own officials on the ground that the Taliban's advance was imminent and that Afghanistan's military may not be able to stop it. In all, there were 23 U.S. Embassy staffers, all Americans, who signed that cable on July 13th. And apparently, according to a U.S. official, there was a rush to deliver it to the Secretary of State, given the urgent circumstances on the ground in Kabul. And despite the dangers posed by the Taliban, Afghans are taking to the streets in Kabul and other cities, to protest the ouster of the country's democratic government. Members of the crowds waved the red, green, and black flag of the republic, chanting, our flag, our pride, and God is great. Taliban forces dispersed some of those peaceful protesters with gunfire, killing at least two of them and injuring at least six others in Asadabad. Taliban fighters took down the republic's flag, replaced it with their own as they rapidly conquered territory across the country. Women even came out. Women who fear losing their civil rights under the Taliban participated in a protest in Kabul where at least two dozen people were injured. The United States and NATO are struggling to speed up the evacuation effort at the airport in Kabul on Friday as criticism grows over the handling of the crisis. Armed Taliban checkpoints, paperwork problems, and other issues contributed to the ongoing chaos and delays as thousands of people clogged the airport, desperate to flee, and thousands more unsuccessfully trying to get to the airport. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said 2,000 passengers were flown out of the country over each of the past two days. State Department spokesman Ned Price said 6,000 more people were cleared for evacuation on Thursday, accelerating their effort to get Americans and Afghans who worked with U.S. troops out of the country. Here at home, with kids going back to school, the COVID-19 Delta variant is finding lots of very young victims. Children are filling intensive care beds in record numbers. Not helping the situation are, at last count, nine Republican governors who think they know more than the medical experts. Arizona, Arkansas, Iowa, Oklahoma, Florida, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah have all enacted laws or issued executive orders prohibiting school districts from requiring students to wear masks. 
In Florida, the state that's been leading the nation in the latest COVID outbreak, a judge on Thursday rejected Governor Ron DeSantis's move to kill a lawsuit filed by a group of parents that challenged the authority of his administration to stop school districts from enforcing the mask mandates. So the case moves forward. Its first hearing is slated for Monday. The parents claim the DeSantis administration is putting the safety of children at risk by blocking local mask policies. And Texas is trying to, but the Texas Supreme Court on Thursday rejected the state attorney general's request to overturn a lower court ruling that allowed nine school districts to require face coverings in public schools despite the governor's executive order banning local mask mandates. The Texas Education Agency said it would suspend enforcement of Abbott's order during ongoing litigation. In Texas, about 58 school districts and eight counties have instituted mask requirements despite Abbott's directive. And while the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, is blocking the black mayors of Houston and Dallas from implementing CDC-recommended COVID rules to save lives, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick went on TV and actually blamed black people for the spread of COVID in his state? The biggest group in most states are African-Americans who have not been vaccinated. The last time I checked, over 90% of them vote for Democrats in their major cities and major counties. So it's up to the Democrats. They're doing nothing for the African-American community that has uh, a significant high number of unvaccinated people. TikTok videos. That is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Wow. Now, although there has been a mask mandate in the House of Representatives, no such rule is or has been in effect in the Senate. So it came as no surprise that three U.S. senators all tested positive for COVID-19 on Thursday. Colorado Senator John Hickenlooper from Maine, Angus King and Roger Wicker of Mississippi all released statements about testing positive for COVID-19 within hours of each other all saying they had mild symptoms, although they're fully vaccinated. Capitol Hill was locked down for over five hours on Thursday as a man in a black pickup truck parked on the sidewalk of the Library of Congress near the Capitol claiming to have a bomb. The man, ID'd as 49-year-old Floyd Ray Roseberry of North Carolina, streamed himself on Facebook Live for nearly four hours, spewing lies about the 2020 election being stolen and threatening to blow up two and a half blocks around the Capitol before Facebook finally cut the feed and shut down his page. The man surrendered to police after hours of negotiations. And although bomb-making materials were found in his truck, there were no explosive devices. He now faces charges of threatening to use explosives and a weapon of mass destruction. According to court documents, one of his relatives reported to local law enforcement on Wednesday that he had, quote, recently expressed anti-government views and an intent to travel to Virginia or Washington, D.C. to conduct acts of violence. All righty then. But adding insult to injury, Congressman and Senate candidate from Alabama, Mo Brooks, defended him. He tweeted out a statement that read, quote, Sadly, violence and threats of violence targeting America's political institutions are far too common. Although this terrorist motivation is not yet publicly known, and generally speaking, 
I understand citizenry anger directed at dictatorial socialism and its threat to liberty, freedom, and the very fabric of American society. Huh? He continued, the way to stop socialism's march is for patriotic Americans to fight back in the 2022 and 2024 elections. I strongly encourage patriotic Americans to do exactly that more so than ever before. Bluntly stated, America's future is at risk. Shouldn't siding with a domestic terrorist be illegal, especially for a member of Congress? Asking for a friend. So you recall how the Texas House Democrats left the state last month, denying the Republican majority a quorum, thereby preventing them from passing new voting suppression legislation. They held a united front remaining in D.C., lobbying Congress to pass federal legislation to prevent these efforts to wrest control of elections. Well, on Thursday, after 38 days, three of the Democrats returned to Texas and to the state house floor, allowing the legislature to reach a quorum, effectively ending the Democrats' valiant effort to protect the right to vote. The three, Representatives Garnet Coleman, Anna Hernandez, and Armando Wall, said in a joint statement that they were, quote, proud of the heroic work of the boycott and vowed to continue the fight on the House floor. Huh? Well, they cited the catastrophic surge in COVID-19 cases and the need to manage the crisis as their reason for coming back. But even with those three Democrats voting no, the bill will most likely pass. Obviously, a federal remedy is needed. And to that end, on Tuesday, Congresswoman Terry Sewell of Alabama introduced H.R. 4, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2021. It expands federal voting protections to all 50 states, providing oversight of any state or local government that has had repeated election violations. It would also stop more subtle voter suppression rules and would stop courts from changing election rules that disenfranchise voters during an election. The House will take up that bill when it returns from a break on Monday, August 23rd. But the fate of the bill will probably be determined in the Senate, where so far only one Republican, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, has signaled support. The bill will die there unless Senate Democrats agree to carve out an exception That would enable them to pass it without the filibuster. They got to do something. Uh, There's more, but let's stop for now. We'll take a quick break. Come back on the other side and talk to Spencer Ackerman, author of the new book, Reign of Terror, and find out how we got here. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today 
to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. The men will cheer, the boys will shout, bring them on, bring them on, and we will all turn out, bring them on, bring them on. The church bells will ring with joy, bring them on, bring them on, to welcome our darling girls and boys, bring them on, bring them on. You're tuned to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi today. I think it's fair to say that most of us are conflicted about what's happening in Afghanistan. The images of people desperate to escape the Taliban are heartbreaking enough. Knowing that so many who've supported us for the last 20 years are trapped is beyond wrong. The media seems to be all in on placing all the blame on Biden. As if there wasn't 20 years of history of failed policy that preceded him and the long overdue end of our occupation of Afghanistan. So, I think this is a good time to take a look back at the last two decades, and even a decade before, to see how we got here. It's the perfect time for Spencer Ackerman to release a book that does just that. Spencer Ackerman has been a national security correspondent for most of that time. He's written for The New Republic, Wire, The Guardian, and The Daily Beast. He's reported from Afghanistan, Iraq, and Guantanamo Bay. He even shared a Pulitzer Prize in 2014 and won some other awards, too, for public service for Edward Snowden's leaks to The Guardian. The book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, just hit stores last week. I spoke with Spencer Ackerman on Monday, just after the weekend that saw Kabul fall to the Taliban. We began by discussing the awful scenes playing out at the airport as Afghans desperately try to escape. What's happening to the people left behind in Afghanistan is not what anybody wants. Getting us the hell out of Afghanistan is something a lot of people wanted and something that under other circumstances we'd be celebrating. Wouldn't Indeed. We? And I, I think that what we're seeing is not an alternative to the war which is how it is being constantly described. What we are seeing is the fruits of the war. The suffering of Afghans that we are seeing right now is the direct result of what has followed not only 20 years of futile, disastrous war, but the result of American destabilization of Afghanistan that went back to the 1980s as it aided the Afghan resistance to the Soviet occupation alongside the Pakistanis and the Saudis, and all of this history is getting flattened, and that risks repeating it. All of this history is getting flattened, and that risks repeating it. So this is far from over, right? There's still uh, hostilities. There's still unsettled business. There's still the remnants of the so-called war on terror in Afghanistan, and we're not going to be free of that. Uh, for some time, if ever. Is that, is that? That is, no, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. What I'm say, although, you know, that is true. What I'm saying is that the war itself is directly responsible for this carnage. We are talking about this carnage, the awful, 
disgusting images of people leaping to cert or falling to certain death from C-17s as they try and flee the war. Yeah. That is, uh, try and flee the Taliban. Ugh. That is the result. That is the only enduring thing that what was once called Operation Enduring Freedom <laughs> has yielded. Right. A human disaster. Oh, my goodness. What is happening, I think, in the discourse around this over the last several days, and in particular today, is the overwhelming desire to pretend that more war would ultimately reduce this circumstance instead of exacerbating it. And if we allow that to take root, then the next Afghanistan war is nigh, and it won't even necessarily be outside of Afghanistan. We heard President Biden say today that he reserves the right to drop bombs on Afghanistan as he sees fit. And that is deeply in keeping with the way the United States, for instance, withdrew uh, from Iraq, only to ultimately, you know, re-escalate because of perceived national security needs. And you know, to your to the point that you brought up earlier, it is very, very true that most of the architecture of the war on terror, the mass surveillance, immigration, giving a counterterrorism sheen, indefinite detention, all of the other components, the existence of the Department of Homeland Security that was used against American citizens. Um, so vividly on the streets last summer, all of that remains in place. All of that yeah. remains mm-hmm. unaddressed. All of that remains tools for the next authoritarian. Oh, boy. That's uh, what my book is about. Yeah, it is. Um, we're going to get into the book from in a moment. I just, you know, I went looking to see. I, I, I didn't have time to read the whole book. I'm midway through it. I, it's, it's a brilliant book, and it's intriguing and fascinating. Um, but I went looking online to see what I could find of any interviews you've done about the book, just to get some insight. And I found something from almost 10 years ago. You didn't ask me anything. And you have one question posted. And it was, what would be the worst consequence of leaving Afghanistan? You were, I'm sure you recall this, yes? No, I have no idea. Oh, my. I, I, I do lots of these things. <laughs> okay. I, if you asked me what I did, like, <laughs> two years ago, I, I would have no way of telling you. Okay. So what in the world did I say on well, well, let's ask me anything let's, 10 years ago. Let's listen. Here we go. It's Ask Spencer Ackerman Anything. A reader asks, what do you foresee as the worst consequence of pulling out of Afghanistan? The worst consequence of pulling out of Afghanistan is from, as best as I can tell, and I don't want to play fake Afghanistan expert, uh, a problem for Afghanistan. It will be a problem for Afghans, which is to say the internal collapse of Afghanistan built on shaky foundations, a ward of the international community economically, uh, a fractured place politically, um, and increasingly uh, unable to reconcile itself to a circumstance that seemingly um, most Afghans want, which is the end of 30 years of conflict. Uh, Institution building in Afghanistan is a failure. Um, It's proven itself ultimately to be a folly. Um, The administration has vacillated, I think, both in its internal deliberations and in its public presentations between triaging a terrible situation and setting itself lofty goals for institutional building while telling both itself, Congress, and the public that it wasn't doing these things anymore. And this is an internal contradiction that the administration never fully resolved. Uh, The consequences of of, of the last couple years bear that out. And 
which Afghanistan itself may not be in a position to internally reconcile. One of the more terrifying prospects that I've heard from a good friend of mine who's lived in, in Afghanistan for the last two odd years is that even if the best case scenarios uh, for the West pan out, which is to say the Taliban, the Karzai administration, the Pakistanis and the United States manage to come to some kind of peace deal, uh, the former U.S. allies uh, in the Northern Alliance, the warlords who initially um, helped the U.S. Uh, invade Afghanistan, take Kabul away from the Taliban, most of them non-Pashtuns, uh, will find that circumstance absolutely unacceptable and will have a civil war even in the case of a Taliban-Karzai peace deal. Um, that strikes me as, you know, probably a, a possibility worth considering and, and triaging but from the perspective of what the U.S. can do to mitigate it, I'm not ultimately certain. Um, it strikes me as foolhardy to say that uh, once the U.S. leaves, al-Qaeda will stream back into Afghanistan. There's no evidence that it's powerful enough to do so. There's also very little evidence that the Taliban find that to be such an important fact about their strategic situation that they would sacrifice a further chance at victory um, in the name of an alliance with al-Qaeda that's ultimately been very costly for them. On the other hand, the Taliban right now probably have good reason to consider that they're winning. <laughs> so Spencer Ackerman, kind of prescient. Eh, not all, you know, <laughs> a not, little bit. not all of that age as well, but uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> there you go. So the book Reign of Terror is out, and it, it, you talk about the war on terror, and you begin with probably the worst case of domestic terrorism up until January 6th, I would I would qualify that, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Or maybe it was worse because more people people more people died. I don't know. But you but you point to uh, Oklahoma City and Timothy McVeigh as um terrorism here, but you draw a distinction that America doesn't count white terrorism as they do when they're foreigners or brown skinned or Muslim. Yeah, that's right. I think that in order to see what the war of terror, uh, in order to see what the war on terror is and how it operates, it's important to look at what the exceptions are. And nowhere was that more visibly on display than in looking at the reaction to Oklahoma City and the way it spared the infrastructure of white terrorism in this country, the expansive persecution, the expansive decimation of, you know, constitutional protections around association and around um, the ability to essentially, you know, be secure in, in your papers and, and your effects. I'm kind of butchering the language of the, of, the, of the Fourth Amendment. But nevertheless, when we see what happens when terrorism isn't white, we get things like the Patriot Act, we get things like the Department of Homeland Security, we get things like the NSA uh, bulk collection programs um, for spying on Americans en masse, we get the essentially criminalization um, of immigration, the treatment of uh, immigration as a national security threat rather than a mechanism for making more Americans. None of that, I'm not trying to suggest that there should be a war on terror against white extremists. I don't think there ought to be. I don't think as much as I hate white supremacy and want to see all of its works destroyed, that the that a war on terror can possibly produce that. All a war on terror can do is recapitulate the circumstances uh, that white terrorism uses to exploit people and turn them 
into followers, uh, everything that would happen here would, would seem in white supremacist propaganda to vindicate its narrative of persecution, its narrative that America has been internally subverted uh, by non-white threats in order to persecute the true Americans. Um, we, we shouldn't do any of that. I am bringing up the Oklahoma City bombings and then I you know, end the book with January 6th in order to make that point about first, uh, the exceptionalism mm -hmm. that occurs here, Secondly, the historical rootedness of that exceptionalism in American history. And thirdly, to show that while America fights a war on terror that on the surface of it is predicated on being agnostic to ideology, as, 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 the, as the FBI likes to say, in my view, deceptively, um, we see instead that white terrorism grows in strength while a war on terror exists. And then when you get ultimately, as I argue in the book, you would inevitably, a figure like Trump is president, all of those mechanisms created for the war on terror can be repurposed against those citizens that nativists view as internal subversives, declaring Black Lives Matter to be a terrorist, right. declaring anti-fascism to be terrorism, treating it um, with uh, investigations from a joint terrorism task force, treating it um, with rubber bullets from the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Marshals and so on. So is that why you say, I mean, you don't like the whole concept of a war on terror? Because, you, you know, got that right. it's the definition of terror. It's, it's who they can proclaim as a terrorist. Is, it, yes. The, the, the book is called Reign of Terror for a reason. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get across that what happened after 9-11 under this veil of patriotic unreality was a reign of terror. Right. And real human beings suffered under it. Real human beings, people with names, people with souls, did not survive this. And while that happened, it always happened inside the United States. Huh. This isn't a case of a foreign war coming home. This is a case of a war that exists simultaneously at home and abroad, yes. and some of its greatest excesses are beta tested first abroad and then find easy application inside a brittle America, an America that has, as a consequence of the war on terror, the institutions that are supposed to protect Americans and that are supposed to protect American freedom eroded. <laughs> Right. A brittle America that tells itself it's resilient, a brittle America that basically lies in wait for a Donald Trump-like figure and then the next Trump. So the, 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 the Patriot Act and the other infringements on our freedoms that were put in place after 9-11 ostensibly to protect us, that's what you're talking about. We paid the price. Obama, Osama bin Laden, his goal was to destroy the American dream, basically, the American, not really exceptionalism, but perceived exceptionalism, the American way of life, wanted us to stop shopping, wanted us, our way of life to be interrupted. On that front, he was successful because we, of all the, the, the stuff that happened to us here at home as a result. I see it, I see it somewhat differently. Okay. Um, Bin Laden wasn't trying to disrupt your way of life. He wasn't trying to stop you from shopping. He okay. wasn't trying to stop me from you know, going to Yankee Stadium. Okay. 
what he was trying to do was force the United States into a geopolitical retrenchment. Hmm. What he was trying hmm. to do, as he says in October of 2004, uh, is bleed the United States into bankruptcy, okay. force it right. into a circumstance of overwhelming imperial overreach. George W. Bush provides him everything he would ever have wanted with the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and then um, Barack Obama takes the, the wars to to uh, to Libya, to Syria. Um, Bush also started out in Somalia. No one bombs Somalia more than and Donald Trump, Trump does. Right. Trump comes extremely close to starting a war with Iran after assassinating Qasem Soleimani in January 2020. These are things that, that bin Laden wanted and succeeded at, but he doesn't get his actual goal. He doesn't get that real U.S. retrenchment. He doesn't he means that much differently than is often um, interpreted by American scholars um, and foreign policy figures. What he means is the United States needs to be forced to abandon its support for people like the Saudi royal family, huh. uh, for the Egyptian military junta, and so on and so forth, the Pakistani government, and so on and so forth. Basically, what he, he wants to see is the end of uh, leadership in the Muslim world that are allied um, with the United States of America. He doesn't succeed in that. He succeeds in getting the United States to do an absolute ton of violent, brutal, and counterproductive things, minting entire new enemies as he goes along. But, you know, bin Laden, I think it's too easy to say with, because bin Laden ultimately is replaced by you know, not literally bin Laden, but al-Qaeda in general, the thing that he brought out is replaced by the so-called Islamic State. Yeah. Al-Qaeda loses a battle for global jihadist leadership. Um, that's a story I also trace in, in Reign of Terror. Um, I view Osama bin Laden as kind of, I know this is somewhat trollish, but, um, a kind, you know, if we were to map Osama bin Laden onto kind of other figures throughout world history, um, and we were to leave aside moral judgment, um, he, to me, is the Marquis de Lafayette, this impossibly wealthy person um, who becomes this symbol of global revolution that sees himself as this figure of history. Um, you know, he goes abroad, Lafayette does, first to the American Revolution, bin Laden goes first um, to the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and then he becomes the self-styled leader of his own revolution. Um, for a while, uh, my friend Mike Duncan has a wonderful biography of Lafayette coming out next week called Hero of Two Worlds that everyone should read if they're interested um, in that kind of history. And there, what we know about Lafayette most conspicuously is that during the French Revolution, he loses control to more radical factions. That's what happens to Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden didn't fully live, uh, or bin Laden didn't live to see that fully develop. Mm -hmm. But all throughout, um, you know, after 2004 in Iraq and the creation um, of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is the, you know, core that will become ISIS, bin Laden is desperately trying to get him reigned in and focus him not on killing the scores and scores of Muslims uh, that Zarqawi kills in Iraq, but 
focused entirely on the Americans, saying, like, look, we have a plan in place here. We have to attack the Americans in order to get what we really want, which is all of our home country's governments destabilized and overthrown. Right. Um, yeah. And bin Laden doesn't win on that front. Well, but he won on destabilizing America because that that did yeah. happen. Right. And and as you say, led to Donald Trump. How did how did 9-11 lead to Donald Trump? What, what is there a direct uh, correlation between the two? Yes, exactly. One. Um, what happens is, is that 9-11 in both um, respectable discourse and then in less respectable discourse gets understood outside of history and outside of material analysis and only in terms of a kind of metaphysical explanation. Think of George W. Bush saying the terrorists hate our freedom. Uh Uh, There's a deliberate imprecision about who the enemy is. The term war on terror um, gets, you know, all the more frustrating and euphemistic the more you you pick at it. What you have instead is this suggestion that what's really happening is a civilizational war, that this is a war, perhaps not with every Muslim, but with an enemy that's exclusively Islamic, mm-hmm. that, the United, you know, that the United States is, neither understands nor is particularly interested in understanding. Just by way of seeing the contrast, this isn't a war against al-Qaeda. It's not focused on that. That's deliberately done by the Bush administration in order to wander in all of these other kind of American exceptionalist wish-listed, wish lists, including particularly the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And so what happens as a result of that deliberate imprecision and that suggestion that this is a civilizational enemy is that the war on terror opens a door into the ugliest, most violent, most racist, and most uh, nativist elements of American Mm. history and allows it not just open, but to allow all those currents to race through to power under cover of a national emergency, a circumstance where we were constantly being told how afraid we needed to be because of the bomb that was always about to be let off. Now, that happens on a much um, more cultural level uh, than does the transformation of the architecture of uh, the American security apparatus and the creation of tools that uh, provide for indefinite detention, mass surveillance, uh, the spying on uh, entire communities, uh, including placing informants in houses of worship and all of the things, the Department of Homeland Security, right. that go into um, the architecture of the war on terror and then defended by people with political power, whether they're intelligence officials um, or elected politicians, under cover of enormous lies, big lies. The CIA doesn't torture people. It inflicts enhanced interrogation right, on them. Right. The CIA, you know, under the, the Obama administration, isn't assassinating people with drone strikes. It's engaging in targeted killing and so on and so forth. The surveillance the NSA claims, uh, the, the surveillance the NSA claim, performs, it claims, is targeted. In fact, it is the opposite of targeted. All of these lies get set into place Um, to conceal the architecture and normalize the architecture of American national security that has been transformed in a manner that threatens freedom. 
um, is, is, you know, in addition to people's lives, it threatens their freedom. And there's, there's kind of no other way to view it. And then something extraordinary happens, which is that a global campaign that's predicated on reasserting American power becomes an absolute disaster, all while politicians of both parties that support it continue to lie and say it is not so much of a disaster. And then when they have a fallback position and kind of recognize that, okay, this thing or this thing or this thing is a, is a disaster, they don't go for abolition and repeal and a return to the status quo ante. They trim at it under the sides. Or under Obama, they wrap it in a, rain of, in a, in a belt of bureaucratic process and allow it to continue. And once all of that happens, you have ultimately a circumstance in which people who are sick of being lied to, but also really desirous of having this righteous patriotic revenge, um, they're no longer able to trust their experts. They're no longer able to trust the elites that got them into these circumstances. And they're lying in wait for a demagogue like Trump to tell them that we don't win anymore and I alone can fix it. And I fix it by doing things Aye. that the establishment isn't prepared to do. And by not being prepared to do it shows how unfit they have been to run these wars that um, are, are just absolute disasters, but still reaffirming that the enemy in this war is not only civilizational, but still on the march. Wow. There's there's so much there. And, and you know, I guess it wasn't only 9-11 and what happened there that led to Trump, but it was then, you know, how the Bush administration played out and how the Obama administration ran for eight years. They didn't necessarily back down on any of this. They kept they kept promoting it. They kept moving it up. They did the surge. They didn't try. They didn't end the war the so-called war on terror or any other war. That's right. They made it less conspicuous. Right. And they entrenched it, particularly Obama. It's Obama yeah. who's elected on this tide of, of, of hopeful anti-war sentiment. But it's Obama who also entrenches all of these things and makes the forever war like really and truly forever. And I would just kind of add to that real quick that ultimately, unless all of this, is removed, unless it's taken away, unless it's abolished, this is going to continue to destabilize America. Last night, Stephen Miller, um, the, yeah, we know Stephen I think Miller. It's <laughs> yeah. Um, Stephen Miller, uh, talking about Afghanistan, uh, sends out a series of tweets telling people that uh, Biden's real plan is to import hundreds of thousands of dangerous Afghans. Oh, my God. And, and, like, of course, these are people who are desperate to escape the Taliban. Yeah. And, you know, propaganda doesn't exactly get refuted with fact and with context. It works in a different way than truthful discourse does. But nevertheless, it's important to point out that Biden is doing no such thing, despite the fact that people like me would argue that the United States has an obligation yes. to throw open <laughs> refugee doors. And let millions of people who are trying to save their lives and their children's lives into safe harbor in the United States, not yeah. just the few, you know, low numbers of thousands. The, the Biden administration is seeking um, to take out because they worked for the Americans. Right. I would argue that taking out those, take, you know, extracting those 
um, who worked for the United States um, in Afghanistan is a moral floor that's operating in the administration as a moral ceiling. And the administration is not challenging these politics. We heard Biden talk this afternoon um, defending the withdrawal. That's well and good. But listen also to what he said. One, he said that uh, he continues, I think the, the actual quote was, we'll maintain a laser focus on our counterterrorism mission there in other parts of the world. So that right. shows you he does see the other aspects of the forever wars continuing, if somewhat inconspicuously. And what he didn't say is that they are going to let all of these people who are seeking desperately to get out of Afghanistan into the United States, where they will finally have this safe harbor that America is tutting to itself, that it's leaving them behind out of. Right. But let me ask you this, Spencer Ackerman. Joe Biden was caught in this situation. He said, I will get us out of Afghanistan. Um, we needed to get out of Afghanistan, this 20-year war that we've sunk lives and money into. Did he do the right thing here? He's getting a lot of criticism today. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on how he did it? Well, he's, he's, he is definitely withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Right. Um, he was obligated to do that right. under the 2020 deal that he inherits from Trump, which I consider the only valorous act of a disgraceful presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I want w- w- the way I would put it is there has been for a very long time deep antipathy and wafer-thin support amongst the American public for these wars. Biden, to his credit, recognizes that. Mm -hmm. He is also influenced by it um, because, as, you know, an experienced politician, he recognizes that there is a very angry constituency amongst a rising left within the Democratic Party that is looking toward abolition of the war on terror. He, he, He needs to kind of stay on its good side, at least. That's put him in positions where I give him credit for, um, for pursuing. But at the same time, he's not going nearly far enough if we're looking toward the abolition of the war on terror now that we recognize the deep, deep danger it poses to American democracy. I, I hear you. Um, and, and what about the, you know, the... The people left behind. I know you want to swing open the doors, as do I. I feel for the women, the children, the young boys, the 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 just the people who want to move forward with their lives. And it looks like they've been pushed back, you know, fifty years uh, in overnight. Um, do we have any responsibility to them? We absolutely do. We have a responsibility to resettle everyone who wants out of Afghanistan. We owe them reparations. Reparations. Um, The United States destabilized Afghanistan, not just in this war, but previously in the 1980s. If we want to have a hope of making this right, that comes with material obligation. We owe the Afghan people a life they can live. uh, I hear you. That doesn't mean more war. No. That means mitigating (laughs) the consequences of our war. Uh, this this is obviously too big a, a subject to cover in 30 minutes. The book deals with a lot of it, obviously not the events of the last you know couple of weeks and the last 24 hours, but this is the world. Um, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump by Spencer Ackerman. It's available now. And by the way, you can subscribe to Spencer's newsletter as well at foreverwars.substack.com. Um, 
uh, by the title of your newsletter, I'm guessing you don't think the wars are going to ever end. They will be forever. No, I don't believe that. I don't think that we're doomed to be forever at war. Um, What I mean by the title is that if we are not paying close attention to this and then acting accordingly, um, we, 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 we will be in a very dangerous circumstance. And so accordingly, we need to have with precision and rigor tracking the permutations, the continuities and the departures of the war on terror. Okay. There's a lot, lot to digest here. I suggest we read the book and then reconvene. Spencer Ackerman, thank you so much. I've been following you for years. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you so much for such a, such a substantive interview, Nicole. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Spencer Ackerman, the book is Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. We're getting close to the end of the hour, but I got a couple more news stories to share with you. So we'll get to those and then we'll stick a fork in it. Stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the broadcast. Did you know we are completely listener supported and free of corporate and political influence? You can help us stay 100% independent over your public airwaves by signing up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like. Just go to bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at NicoleSandler.com. And my show is not behind a paywall. So you can visit the website and listen to episodes. You can read the blog. You can explore the site. There's tons of content there. So if you've got some time to kill, head on over to NicoleSandler.com and explore. And uh, hopefully you'll come check out my show. Brad and Desi will be back in time for the next episode of the broadcast. All right, I told you we're close to the end of the hour, but there are a few extra stories that I need to share with you. For instance, if you are in the Northeast, I hope you're preparing for Hurricane Henri. All right, at the time of this taping, it's still Tropical Storm Henri, but he's gaining strength and is expected to become a hurricane by Saturday. On Sunday, landfall is projected on Long Island with impacts from New York City, which is now under a tropical storm watch, northward through New England. Transit has been infected in Boston, and they're warning that a dangerous ocean surge to coastal areas, inland flooding, and damaging winds are predicted. Take it from someone who lives in South Florida. Don't take this lightly. Be prepared and stay safe. Now, the other thing you need to stay safe from is COVID-19, because despite the way a lot of people are acting, it's not over yet. The good news is more than 1 million people got vaccinated in the U.S. on each of the last two days. So maybe people are getting the message. And in case they don't, let me share with you an obituary I saw for somebody who died of COVID. His family knew exactly what to say. So it's an obituary for a man named David W. Nagy. And I believe he lived in Texas, So, but I don't know what newspaper this was in, but it doesn't really matter. Just listen to what they wrote. 
David W. Nagy passed away on July 22, 2020 in the ICU at Christus Good Shepherd Hospital in Longview. He suffered greatly from the ravages of the COVID-19 virus and the separation from his much-loved family who were not allowed at his bedside. Mr. Nagy was born November 7, 1940 in Salt Lake City, Utah, spent most of his life in California. He made his home in Northeast Texas many years ago after retiring, living in Jefferson for the past three years. Mr. Nagy leaves behind his inconsolable wife, Stacy, his five children, as well as numerous grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and friends. Here's the important part. Family members believe David's death was needless. They blame his death and the deaths of all the other innocent people on Trump, Abbott, and all the other politicians who did not take this pandemic seriously and were more concerned with their popularity and votes than lives. Also to blame are the many ignorant, self-centered, and selfish people who refuse to follow the advice of the medical professionals, believing their right not to wear a mask was more important than killing innocent people. A statement issued by the family declared that Dave did everything he was supposed to do, but you did not. Shame on all of you, and may karma find you all. Rest in peace, Dave W. Nagy, and hopefully your obituary saved a life or two. If you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, please do. And when you go out, wear a mask. This is far from over. We can eradicate this virus, but you got to take it seriously. All right, I'm off my soapbox. Thanks for hanging with me today. Brad and Desi will be back next time. I'm Nicole Sandler. Come check out my show at NicoleSandler.com. Until next time, as Brad always says, good luck, world. Good luck, world.